Well, would you take your Bibles out and turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue week number 7 in this series I've entitled Summer of Hope. Summer of Hope. And what we're seeking to do this summer series is look at passages and truths into the Scripture that confirm to our hearts and our minds the ironclad hope and realities we have in the gospel, particularly in hopeless times. These are truths and principles that help us to live above the fray, that help us and empower us to live above the chaos that often swirls about our lives and in our culture because they bring us back to the very bedrock of hope itself. Of course, today, as we've mentioned already, is a special day in the history of our nation as we celebrate the 245th anniversary of the birth of this nation, a nation that has been a beacon of hope and a bastion of security for so many. And as a son of a European immigrant who came to this country seeking a better life, I am keenly aware of the promise that is held in this nation. And I'm so thankful for it. I'm mindful of the long-held ideals of this nation that have provided not only for my family, but for countless families, friends, opportunities we would have never known. If you were born here, it is a peculiar grace from God. Do you believe that? It's a peculiar grace from God that you are living in the most influential and most prosperous nation the world has ever known. But as we come to celebrate this birth of a nation on this 4th of July, we are mindful that on that first 4th of July, back in 1776, there were 56 American patriots that put their signatures on this document known as the Declaration of Independence. It, of course, was a document that put forth their intention to separate as 13 colonies from the mother country of England. But this document was also intended not only to declare their separation and their independence from the mother nation of England, but it was hopefully going to compel other nations to come alongside the 13 united colonies in their fight for independence. But perhaps the greatest intention and objective of this document was to inspire and to motivate the people the citizenry of the 13 colonies, to bring up arms, to join the fight, to go against England in the battle for independence. Now, we are so far removed, even just 245 years, we're so far removed from the events of this historical moment that I think we fail to grasp the weight and the gravity of these decisions that would have been heavy upon the shopkeeper, the farmer, the tradesman, the teachers, you know, the preamble of this declaration is probably the most familiar to us. These words were intended, again, to motivate and to inspire the citizenry to fight for independence. Here's what it says. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These stirring words would convince and help and motivate so many American citizens to put their lives on the line for the cause of liberty. You see, because separation from the mother country, it threatened their security, it threatened their economic well-being, and friends, it threatened their very identity. The document went on to list 27 
grievances against the king of England. And as such, it constituted the proof necessary that they should, in fact, be an independent nation. But perhaps the most important line of the document comes at the very conclusion. It was intended to communicate the depth of their com commitment to the cause. Here's how the document concludes. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So how did the king of England receive this declaration of independence? Did he look at the 27 grievances and said, oh, there's a lot of merit to these. I see where you're coming from. Sure, y'all can be free. You're liberated. No, that wasn't the case at all. His response to this declaration of independence was all-out war. He was prepared to crush the 13 colonies. In fact, in the fictitious words of King George from his breakup song in the musical Hamilton, here's what he said. You'll be back like before. I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. When you're gone, I'll go mad, which he did. So don't throw away this thing we had, because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Now, what's my point in all this? Friends, listen, as we celebrate the 4th of July as the birthday of our nation, friends, before freedom could actually be realized, there had to be a war. There had to be a battle. You see, liberty was declared on July 4th, 1776, but it wasn't achieved and wasn't realized until seven years later, September 3rd of 1783 at the Treaty of Paris. So even though it said, you're free, here's a declaration that says you're free, freedom wasn't realized until much later. And I believe this could serve for us, friends, as a metaphor for our own lives. You see, our liberty was declared at the cross. Freedom declared when Jesus died and was resurrected from the dead. But freedom for you and freedom for me is not realized and not actualized until the war happens. You see, there is a battle. I, I'm calling this sermon the provision for our hope. I, I could have called it the battle for our hope or the war for our hope. Here's why. Each and every one of us was born under a cruel monarchy. Each and every one of us was born under a hostile dictatorship that ruled our lives. We were subjected our whole lives to this vicious king, and we were held sway to his whims and his proclivities. If you are a Christian today, it's because there was a war that was waged for your soul so that this cruel dictator could be toppled and overthrown. Who is this dictator that was keeping your soul enslaved? I'll tell you exactly who it was. You! <laughs> you had to be relinquished of your sovereign rule of your life. A battle had to be waged with you as the potentate of your soul you had to be de defeated again the declaration for your liberty was declared at the cross but at a point in time this war was waged and the king of kings and lord of lords overthrew you now, there's a very rich and helpful bible word for this war for this battle for this event the word is this look at this next slide regeneration you might want to write this word down. Regeneration. It's a Bible word. 
used multiple times in the New Testament, probably most familiarly in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. This word really gives great understanding to the war that was waged in our soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He, he saved us, not because of works done, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of, here's our word, regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is the battle for your soul that was waged by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in the Bible, it's called the new birth. Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he referred to it as being born of the Spirit, the Spirit or the wind, in the same word in Greek. The wind blows where it wishes. Those who are born of the Spirit. Here in our focal text, we'll read in just a moment, Peter uses the phrase born again. Each of those words are describing this war that was waged for your soul. You being raised from death to life. And this is, friends, the provision for our hope. Well, let's read our focal text this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, there's the regeneration, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you notice how Peter begins this section, these three verses? He begins with a doxology. He begins with this praise. He says, blessed. That's a word of praise. That's a word of exaltation. That's a word of worship. Blessed be. Now, I would call this Peter's 4th of July fireworks show. He's putting forth a celebration of God's radical conversion, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that motivates this type of praise, this exaltation, this celebration? Well, there's really three things from the text I want us to see. And really, before we get into it, we need to uh, recognize there are three segments of our lives. One, the regeneration is rooted in the past. Our salvation is realized in the present. And friends, listen, it will be rewarded in the future. This is the great salvation we have. This is the provision, what God has done, what he is doing, and what he promises he will do. The first one thing I want us to notice is this. Number one, it is grounded in God. The rescue, the provision, the regenerative work of the Spirit, it is grounded in God. It goes back further than humanity itself. Before you were ever a gleam in your father's eye, God had designed this work. Notice how Peter again put it in verse 3. According to, this work is done according to his great mercy. Now I want you to remember that Peter, who authored this epistle, was Jewish by birth. And as such, he was very familiar with the whole Old Testament scriptures, with the Talmud, with the uh, teachings of the law, with Old Testament history as a good Jewish man. And this concept of mercy, it is rooted in 
the Hebrew. It is rooted in the Old Testament covenant principles and pictures. In the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word is hased, which is used all through the Old Testament to describe the covenant-keeping God and his covenantal works. If you'll remember in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses in chapter 33 says, God, show me your glory, and God says, you can't see my glory, buddy. Then he says, okay, here's what I'll do, second best. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by you, and I will declare to you my name. One of the names he declared to Moses as being a fundamental aspect of his character is this word hased, his loving kindness, his mercy, his steadfast mercy. We also see Ephesians 2 expresses this divine benevolence in a similar way. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Did you notice those adjectives that were used there for mercy and love? God is rich in mercy. God is great in love. Why does God have to be rich in mercy and great in love? Because of how desperate we are. Because of how heinous our sin, how wretched our depravity. Nothing but the rich mercy of God and the great love of God could rescue us from such a desperate and pitiful condition. God's rich mercy and God's great love highlights for us just how awful our sin is. But out of God's infinite compassion and free, abundant, and limitless mercy, he chose to grant eternal life. Friends, the work, the war of regeneration, it's grounded in God. It's rooted in the past. Here's the second thing I want us to see. Not only is it grounded in God, but number two, it is given by God. This work of new birth it's given by God. Again, look at verse 3. Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Who is the first cause here? Us? Did we cause ourselves to be born again? No, God is. He is the first cause. Just as we know, based on the authority of the Scripture, that this universe that we inhabit, it didn't come to be on its own. We know, common sense tells us that the cosmos did not spontaneously generate. Duh! You can't get something out of nothing when nothing's there. There had to be an outside power source that was the first cause of all that exists. And so we know, based upon the Word of God, that God spoke into the nothing and something came. In the very same way, when you were born again, there was nothing there. There was no spiritual life. You weren't just on life support. You weren't just on a small spiritual faint pulse. Well, I see a little bit of pulse there, a few brainwaves, spiritually speaking. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The only way for you to come to life spiritually was if someone outside you was the first cause. Someone spoke into your life and you were regenerated from death to life, from darkness to light. This is exactly what happened. Now, we as individual evangelical Christians, we use that term born again in our everyday language because it's a Bible word, it's a Bible concept, it's a Bible phrase. And when we talk about being born again, listen, it's not just a cathartic experience. 
Being born again is not just that we went to some psychiatrist's office, we laid out on the couch, and we imagined going back into our mother's womb and emerging the birth canal. Oh, I'm a fresh start. That is not what this means. It's something completely different. It is what Peter is calling here being born again. Jesus used the exact same language as I mentioned earlier with Nicodemus. Here's Nicodemus, religious scholar, a very good man, followed the law to the letter, and Jesus said, unless you're born again, Nick, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not about your worthiness. It's not about your goodness. It's not about your religiosity. It's not about you keeping a list of do's and don'ts. Only when the power of God's Holy Spirit, the breath of God comes into you and speaks something where there's nothing, that's the only way you can know God. Now, to get at the depth of what this means, let me ask you a question. How do you know you were born physically? How do you know? If I wanted to prove to you that I was in fact born, I wouldn't go to our fire safe that the clunches gave us when they heard about our house, house fire. My birth certificate is in that fire safe now, so we don't have to order a new one in case I burn the house down again. Uh, it's, not in the, it's in the fire safe. I wouldn't go pull it out of the fire safe and say, see, told you I was born, right? I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't hire Magnum P.I. to go down to Tampa General Hospital and somehow try to find the doctor who was present or the nurses who were there on February 3, 1969. Oh, yeah, he was born. How do I know I was born? I'm alive. <laughs> it's interesting. You ask the same question, how do you know you were born again? You know what people will say, most evangelical Christians? Oh, let me, let me turn to this page in my Bible. I wrote it down right here. That's how I know. Oh, I prayed this prayer. I filled out a decision card. I walked an aisle. I went to a treat, retreat. I finished a class. Here's how you know you're born again. You have spiritual life. You have an affection for the things of God. You have a love for the people of God. You have a desire for the Word of God. If that's not there, you ain't alive. How do you know you were born again? There's spiritual life coursing through you. And Peter says, this is something that God did. He caused us to be born again. To what? The text continues, to a living hope. Not a dead hope. Why? Because we don't have a dead Savior. We have a living Savior. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the fact of the resurrection that Jesus is alive. What does he mean by this? Think about this, friends. On that Friday when Jesus died, and they took his corpse down from that cross, and they placed him in that tomb, he went into that tomb alone. But on Sunday morning, when he came out, he did not come out alone. He came out as the federal head leading a company of saints who were raised with Him to newness of life. If you're a believer today, you were with Christ when He was resurrected from the dead. That's what Peace saying here. He, we have been born again, regenerated to a living hope. How? Not through the idea of a resurrection, not through the concept of a resurrection, not through the message even of the resurrection. That's powerful. Through the resurrection. Look how Paul put it in a couple other passages in the next slide. Paul said this in Colossians 3.1, you have been raised with Christ. In Ephesians 2.6, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. We know 
that we are born again through the fact that Jesus is alive. And just a little bit about the context of this letter of 1 Peter. Peter wrote this, he says in verse 2, to the elect exiles. These are Asia Minor believers in Jesus. What is an exile? Well, we know in the Old Testament exile were the Hebrews, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah who were taken captive by Babylon and hauled 900 miles away to be exiles from their home country. When he's talking about exiles here, he's not talking about physical exiles. Because I would say the vast majority, most of those to whom he's writing this original letter, they're still living in the same region of the world where they were born. So how are they exiles? They're exiles not physically, they have become exiles spiritually. Because of the regenerative work of Christ, because they are born again, they have a new identity, they have a new, listen on July 4th, citizenship. How many of you, and this isn't a trick question, you can answer honestly, how many of you, I think I only see one person who would not be able to raise their hand, how many of you are citizens of the United States of America? Raise your hand. You can raise it high. This is good. I'm not going to trick you. Good. Listen, we're just passing through. We have a higher citizenship. We have a greater allegiance than to this country. And to these spiritual exiles Peter is writing to in Asia Minor, it's almost as if he puts his arm around them as they're enduring great hostility and affliction just like we can expect as as exiles in the United States of America, hostility and affliction, he puts his arm around them and says, listen, it's not just that God has made your salvation possible, friends. It's that he's made it certain. He has caused you to be born again. This provision for our hope, it is grounded in God. It is given by God, but look into the future, it is guarded by God. It is guarded by God. In verse 4, Peter moves from the past provision in the mercy of God and the present position in the being born of God to the promised possession in our future inheritance with God. Verses 4 and 5 are future focused. You see, God has unilaterally changed our past, but friends, he has also changed our future. He's changed the course of our destiny. There are three distinct ways from the text I want to point this out. Number one, God has transformed in the future our eternal status. Our eternal status has been changed. He says, to, you've been saved, you've been born again, regenerated, to an inheritance. Now think about it. Throughout human cultures and human history, who are the primary beneficiaries of a father's will, a father's inheritance? The children, right? The children receive the inheritance. And because we have been born again, we've been born again to an inheritance. Our status has gone from vagabonds, debtors, beggars, and slaves to now we are children of the Most High God. This is profound. Christian, this is who, who you are. You are an heir of the Creator. And this new status that is eternal should fundamentally change the way you approach life. In fact, let me illustrate it like this. Uh, imagine on Tuesday, I don't know if the mail's running tomorrow. Is the mail running tomorrow? We're off. Imagine on Tuesday, you get delivered a certified mail from an attorney in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And you look at it and say, well, this is curious. You sign for it, you open it up, 
And what you come to discover is you had a great uncle, you've seen a couple of times in your life, but pretty much forgot about, who has passed away. He had no children, and he has identified you as his sole heir. You don't think it's a big deal until you keep reading the letter and you realize he had a large cattle ranch that has all been liquidated, and now your inheritance is the multi-millions of dollars. Friends, how would that change the way you went to work on Wednesday? How would that change your view of that coworker who's always getting on your nerves? Somebody just had some people pop in your mind, right? How would that change the stack of bills on your kitchen counter? How would that change your outlook? Now, friends, if you can imagine yourself in that fictional situation, let me tell you about a true situation. If you are in Christ... If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you have been born again to an inheritance. We should not live our lives for things so small as money. A multi-million dollar earthly inheritance is infinitesimal compared to the riches of God, the wealth of God. And if you think on these things, it will completely change your outlook on life. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But Peter not only describes our eternal status as heirs, he also describes, secondly, our eternal security as heirs. Notice the security of our inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You notice he used three successive words there, and that's just not a sermonic device to try to add emphasis. These are three unique, three meaningful words, and I want us to just consider them real quickly that describe how God is guarding us forever. First, he uses the word imperishable, and that word simply means it is unable to be destroyed. Unable to be destroyed. Now, when you consider the world in which we live in, that everything rusts, everything corrodes, everything rots, everything wears out, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 20. He said, build up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Our inheritance is imperishable. It is unable to be destroyed. Then he says, our inheritance is undefiled. That means it is not polluted. Not polluted. It is pure. It is clean. It is pristine. From our vantage point, it is hard to imagine a world like this that's undefiled by sin. But I want you to try to imagine it. Imagine a place where there are no fire safes. Imagine a place where there are no locks on doors, where there are no burglar alarms, where young ladies can walk through a dark, wooded area without fear. That doesn't exist here, does it? But there is a pure, undefiled, not polluted kingdom waiting for us. Why? Because it's ruled by a pure lamb of God who is undefiled, who came to rescue us. He says it's imperishable, it's undefiled. Third descriptive word he uses, it's unfading. It will not decay. Having firmly reached middle-aged, I used to say I was putting it off. I always said, well, I, I've not reached the top of the hill because I used to say, well, I'm only half my life. So when I turned 40, I said, well, I'm going to live to 80. I haven't yet 
gone over the hill. I'm 52 now. I don't think I'm making 104, right? So I'm over the hill officially. <laughs> oh, that's painful to admit. <laughs> now, in younger days, I never understood why all these older men were groaning every time they sat down. <laughs> now I groan when I sit down, when I get up, when I move. I'm groaning all the time. Oh, oh you know. Why? Gravity is taking over. The descent to the earth is real. In contrast, the inheritance of Christ is unfading. It will not decay. It will never fade. It will never sag. It will never wrinkle. Isn't that wonderful news? Peter then says that our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and fading, it is being kept, kept in heaven for you. Look at this next slide. You've probably seen this foil sign in the window of your local bank. Your bank likely is insured by the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Every bank that you deposit your funds into, if they go belly up, upwards of $250,000. Anybody got two fifty in their bank account? I'm just kidding. You don't answer that question. Up to $250,000 in your local bank is insured. Look what it says. Can you, I don't know if you can read that backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. Now that makes me feel really good with a government that's $28 trillion in debt, right? Oh, man, I can sleep at night knowing that. Listen, our inheritance is kept, it is insured by the full faith and credit of the creator of the universe, the breather of stars, the singer of galaxies says, I'm keeping it for you. Peter continues this line of thought going into verse 5. He presents these reasons to rejoice. Not only do we have an eternal status and an eternal security, but finally, we have our eternal Savior. We have our eternal Savior. Heaven is not heaven if the Savior is not there. See, we can talk about the new birth. We can talk about an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and kept in heaven but there may still be this morning in you a nagging feeling. Yeah, how do I know I'm going to make it? How do I know I'm going to get there? We can affirm this morning, yes, God called me. He brought me from death to life through the fact of the resurrection from the dead. He's prepared an inheritance for me. Friends, just as God will not step back from his unilateral work of saving you, he will not step back and shrink back from his unilateral work of keeping you, who by God's power are being guarded. God does not wonder about your future. God does not say, I, I wonder if Troy's going to make it to the end. I wonder if he's going to keep on believing. Do you notice he begins verse 5 with a personal pronoun? Who? The verse 4 is talking about an inheritance, a what? Possessions. Who is a people? People, by God's power, are being guarded. Therefore, friend, is our salvation being protected by our good deeds? No. Is our salvation being protected by keeping a list of rules? No. Our salvation is being guarded by the power of God. If you and I make it to heaven, it will only be because God brought us there. 
And just how does this work? How does God protect our faith? How does he guard our faith? Now, if you've been tuned out, I need you to tune in right here. This is wonderful. By God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We need to understand how God's power and our faith work together. How they are connected is a better way of putting it. Many of you, like me, have probably seen those TV preachers, the prosperity preachers, the charlatans, who have said something to this effect. You've got to express your faith to activate God's power. Your act of faith will activate the power of God in your life. So sow that $1,000 seed as an act of faith if you want the power of God in your life. Anybody heard something like this before? That is a lie from the pit of hell. Your acts of faith don't activate the power of God. The power of God activates your faith. This is the truth of the gospel. It is God's power that activates faith in us. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Think about it this way. If something was going to keep me from heaven, what would it be? Well, we could say sin, Satan, rebellion. The root of it all is this, unbelief. If I quit believing the gospel, if I quit believing in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I ain't going to heaven. What keeps me believing? The power of God activates my faith. Let me show you this in a couple ways as we move towards a conclusion. Very familiar passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. Oh, excellent. It's our faith that activates the power of God. No, wait. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I want to show you this reality even in Peter's life in such a beautiful episode between him and the Lord. It was on the day of his betrayal. And there they are gathered in the upper room as they would celebrate together the Passover meal and Jesus would end the Passover, wasn't necessary anymore after this meal, and would institute communion, the Lord's Supper. Just before Peter, the author of this letter we've been studying, would deny the Lord in three successive occasions. I want you to see what Jesus said to Peter. In Luke chapter 22, beginning verse 31, he said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What's he saying? Simon, Peter, you're about to be pressed through the sieve of Satan's affliction. You're going to experience the temptation and difficulty like you never have before. But look at these beautiful words. But I have prayed for you. Is there anything sweeter than to hear Jesus say to you on the precipice of the deepest and darkest trial and temptation of your life? But Peter, I've prayed for you. What did he pray for him? That your faith may not fail. See, because if it was only up to Peter, his faith was going to fail. But the power of God activated the faith in Peter. Why? Because we know that afterwards he went out and wept bitterly. He was repentant of the sin. Why? How did he express such faith to 
repent of his sin. The power of God that Jesus, the Son of God, prayed for. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And then what did he say? And when you've turned again, not if you turn again, supposing you'll turn again, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what he did. He turned again. He repented because of the power of God activating his faith to repentance. He preached the gospel, the first Christian message on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 souls were saved. How else is he strengthened the brothers? Friends, 2,000 years later, I'm preaching from his letter, and he's strengthening the brothers because Jesus prayed that the power of God would activate his faith. I told you at the beginning of this message that Peter begins this section with the doxology. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a word of praise. It's a word of worship. It is his 4th of July fireworks display. What a great God we have. Just a few minutes ago as I was praying to come in here to preach this message to you, here's what I prayed for you. That this coming week, when you look back on the 4th of July, you would not say, you know, the greatest fireworks display I saw this 4th of July was over here at the Patent Center. The greatest fireworks display I saw was when we almost blew ourselves up in the parking lot. I prayed for you. The greatest 4th of July fireworks display you experience today will be when we just sing in a moment. We're about to praise God. We're about to exalt his, Him for His salvation. We're about to give a blessing to God because we have been born again. May this be our celebration. We're going to sing a song that was written right from this text, Living Hope. So Christian, I challenge you, let this be a fireworks display. You worship God passionately for the great salvation He has wrought in your life. And that leads to my last thought. As life around us becomes increasingly uncertain, we can have confidence in the promised salvation we have in Christ. Let's go to him in prayer.